the New Testament survey now. We just completed the Old Testament survey back before Christmas. And uh, while we're not doing <coughs> a verse-by-verse study, we are trying to give uh, kind of a high-level overview of each uh, book of the Bible, a little bit about uh, the historical setting, a little bit about the author, a little bit about... Uh, it helps us to understand sometimes the accounts that are given, some of the uh, stories and some of the uh, illustrations that are used. It helps us a lot of times to have a little bit of an understanding of, um, of its background and we can kind of relate a little bit better to what are some of the things that it's teaching. John, out of the four Gospels, is um, known as the simplest of the four Gospels in the fact that John's very, very plain in how he writes. Uh, everything is very concise. And uh, this particular Gospel is often referred to as a supplement uh, to the other three. And yet, even though it's uh, kind of there to fill in the gaps of some of the other Gospels, and a lot of people consider it to be a supplement. They do also believe uh, that it is the greatest of the four and that it is the most powerful of the four. Um, Again, you uh, look at uh, what a lot of people who print Scriptures, uh, they oftentimes, if they can't print a full Bible, what do they print? They print two books, John and Romans. And the reason is they believe that John has the most concise, the most simple uh, explanation and declaration. John's purpose uh, in writing his book, and it seems like the emphasis that he has, everything he writes about revolves around the idea that he wants to get people the message of the simple gospel and to bring them to Christ. And everything that he writes seems to point towards that, even the way he writes oftentimes uh, seems to point to this. So he's considered this particular gospel is considered uh, the greatest, the most powerful of the other three. It doesn't mean that the other three are not inspired by God. Each of them have their own purpose, and each of them are profitable to us. Uh, so we need to keep this and understand this. John's focus is to bring people uh, to a faith in understanding salvation, and he does this by presenting uh, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ above all of the other gospels. John seeks to establish the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we study throughout this, uh, that he uh, goes out of his way and, uh, of course, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, but he, he puts a lot of emphasis uh, on uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is indeed the very Son of God. It begins in verse number 1 of chapter 1, if you'll take your Bibles and look there. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's very interesting uh, that he begins by establishing that Jesus was in the beginning. And uh, when the beginning happened, he was already there, the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the fact that he was the Word. Uh, The Bible says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As we come down to... um, uh, verse number, let's see here, verse number seven. The Bible says, uh, The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, meaning the witness here, John the Baptist. He is not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, 
To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. So He begins with an emphasis of establishing the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He makes no bones about it. He kind of hits you between the eyes with it right from the onset that uh, this is the, the Son of God. Um, you're going to find that John progressively talks about the rejection and how uh, many of the Jews rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he goes through his book, that rejection becomes greater and greater. And yet he puts more and more emphasis on the fact that this is the very Christ. This is the Son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Uh, and so this is kind of the focus, kind of the general direction that this book is going to, to go. Um, there's basically five sections to the book, and uh, we're going to talk about each of those sections. The first one is uh, in, G, uh, in John 1 and verse number 1 through down about verse number 18 uh, of the first chapter, somewhere around there. And uh, this deals with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was going to say the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I like the word incarnation better because um, the word incarnation gives the idea that He already was and that He comes in the form of a man. He was already God and He humbles Himself, as according to Philippians chapter number 2, and He humbles Himself and becomes uh, in the fashion as a man, comes in the fashion of man. So He is God incarnate. Uh, he wasn't just born. If we said He was born, uh, any man is born. But this is the incarnate Son of God. This is uh, God wrapped in flesh. And He certainly is uh, all man. Uh, in this section, this first section of the book, uh, John establishes about uh, the forerunner that was to be there, John the Baptist. He talks about him. He starts dealing with what the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is, and that was to come to redeem man from their sins. And he talks about that uh, in verse number uh, 8 and 9, uh, that was the true light that lighteth every man uh, that cometh into the world. And so his whole purpose, and verse number 12, is established, uh, but as many as received him, to them gave you the power to, be, to gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So he establishes Christ's mission right at the onset. Uh, and then he, uh, he already begins to foreshadow uh, a little bit of, the rejection. And John 1, in this first chapter, this first section, he really kind of summarizes what he's going to write the entirety of the book about. Because he also speaks here of the rejection. Uh, the Bible says um, uh, in verse number, uh, let's see here, verse number 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light. Uh, let's see, where was that? Um, verse number 14, here we go. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And uh, so we find Him again establishing uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second section of the book is presenting Christ in a very unique way uh, as the Son of God. And um, Israel is, is very much kind of, you got to understand, they were expecting their Messiah to come as their king, as their deliverer. They were not expecting Him to come humble in a humble uh, birth. Uh, they were not expecting Him to come the way that the Lord Jesus Christ came. They were looking for Him to come in the clouds on a horse and come right through, marching through the gates of Jerusalem and to deliver them. That's what Israel was looking for. 
And so when Jesus comes on the scene they are, uh, and, and makes this claim, and others make this claim that He's the Son of God, they begin to scrutinize Him very closely. They begin to watch Him. And they, they, and they, had, this, um, they had an inclination already at the onset to deny that He was the Lord Jesus Christ. So John takes uh, the opportunity, and it begins here in this second section, uh, but he continues it on through the next uh, section as well. But he uses seven different signs, uh, miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did. John uses seven specifically to not only show that Christ had power to perform miracles, but the miracles that John uses are very specifically chosen uh, to indicate not only that he had the power to perform miracles, but to signify the ministry of what Christ was able to do. And I want to go through these very quickly. The first one we find is in chapter 2 and verse number, verses number 1 through 11. And I'm not going to take time to read the entirety uh, of this passage, but we know that this is the message, uh, or the, the miracle of the water into wine at the, at the uh, Cana of Galilee. And uh, down in verse number 8, the Bible says, And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine unto thou. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And this is a notable point in establishing Christ as the Son of God. Um, this water into wine, uh, and, and I'm going to draw some parallels to each of these seven miracles, and uh, is, a, is an illustration of the fact that Christ was coming on the scene and transitioning the world from law to grace. Um, there's a miraculous thing that takes place there, and there's a, a symbolism, a parallelism that could be drawn from this particular uh, thing, that that which was there, uh, that was, it was good and it sustained people, but the best was yet to come. Uh, Galatians talks very clearly about this, and the fact that the law was imperfect, and that it could not redeem man. It could not save man. In the keeping of the law, uh, there was not any way that man could be saved or justified or uh, made free from sin. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be. And that uh, second uh, testament, that second covenant that Christ did for us on Calvary, is enough to save us from our sin. It is enough to redeem us from our sin. And uh, so we see a transition from law to grace in this picture of the miracle of Cana of Galilee. Uh, and then uh, the second miracle is found in chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. This is the healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the nobleman's son. And uh, this pictures the restoration uh, of a sinful man to fellowship with God uh, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get saved, uh, we are restored in our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, he pictures through a miracle... Uh, one of the works that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes in His earthly ministry. The third sign, the third miracle that John deals with here, is in chapter 5 and verses 1 to 16, and that is the healing of the paralytic man. And here we find that Jesus Christ is able to replace weakness 
with his strength. Here's a man who could not come to Christ, and yet Christ is able to restore strength to him. When we get saved, uh, one of the great things that the Lord Jesus Christ does for us is give us his strength. In fact, Paul said his strength is made perfect in weakness. And uh, certainly a wonderful picture here in this. Again, each of these, it seems like John is... Uh, I know the Holy Spirit inspired him and instructed him to write these things, but it just seems like they are so aptly chosen uh, to picture and to bring some validity to the fact to the nation of Israel that this Christ is the Son of God. And uh, then the fourth one is the feeding of the multitudes in chapter six through chap- uh, chapter verse number one through thirteen. The feeding of the multitudes, and again, pictures the fact that Christ satisfies the hunger of the soul. Every man that has ever been born has an innate desire to seek for God. Uh, don't, don't ever believe that somebody says, well, I've never had a desire to seek for God. Every man's nature seeks for God. There's something that is missing there. There's something that the world is hungering and thirsting for, and they don't know what it is. And the truth is, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, the feeding of the uh, multitude, chapter 6, again, picturing that Christ has come to satisfy the hunger of the soul. Um, Then the next miracle, the fifth miracle, is walking on the water. Chapter 6, verse 16 to 21. Chapter 6, verse 16 to 21. And uh, this, this shows us and pictures that Christ leads us from fear to faith. And boy, isn't that a beautiful picture. How fearful John was, and yet, or Peter was, and yet he steps out of the boat and comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it pictures Christ leading us from fear to faith, and that He never leaves us. Remember when Peter began to sink? Christ didn't just disappear from him. He caught him, didn't He? And what a beautiful, beautiful picture in that parable. Uh, or that, not that parable, that miracle. Um, and then the next one, the sixth miracle. Uh, the sight given to the blind man that was born blind. Uh, remember that one? Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And a beautiful picture that Christ overcomes darkness and gives light. He opens up our eyes. I love the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, he talks about the fact I once was blind, but now I see. Why? Because of what Christ did for us. He took our darkness and He gave us light. And uh, what a wonderful picture again in this uh, miracle. And then the seventh and final miracle that John gives is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this probably ought to be one of the most exciting ones that we look at. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 44, that Christ transforms us from death unto life. And each of these miracles so vividly pictures and portrays uh, the ministry and the work the transforming work that the Son of God does in our hearts and our lives when we get saved. And so John uh, takes this uh, second section and a little bit of the third section that we haven't gotten to yet, and he spreads those miracles out across those, but he, he illustrates each of these very clearly. So now back to the third section. Uh, we've seen already the incarnation of Jesus. We've seen the presentation of Jesus as the Son of God and, and, and establishing Him as the Son of God. That was chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 5 and verse 54. The third section is uh, showing the opposition to the Son of God. Chapter 5 and verse number 1 through chapter 12 and verse number 50. 
And uh, it is a progression. John actually shows the building of the opposition and the resentment towards the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> he, out of all the Gospels, John is probably more careful to record the reactions of the miracles that were performed, those seven miracles we just talked about. John more clearly and more vividly records not just the miracle, but the reaction of those that were there. And while there were many that believed and there were many that followed, there were also many that were skeptical and there were many that uh, were deniers of the fact that He was the Christ. And uh, John records this, and as Jesus goes through His ministry, not only does His fellowship grow and those that believe, but also those that oppose and those that are against Him begin to grow. And it culminates at the time of the crucifixion. And John... Uh, throughout his gospel, seems to show the steady growth of opposition, the, the, the expanding of it, uh, in this third section from chapter 5 through chapter 12. And um, let's see here. It's interesting because John, at the beginning of his book, even though he deals with the crucifixion in the end of the book, throughout the book of John, we're going to take a minute to look at this, because throughout the book of John, even when he's presenting Christ to the people, he still brings up things in his gospel that foreshadow the crucifixion is coming. Uh, let's look at a few of these. Turn with me to John chapter number 2. <coughs> and, uh, and let's look in verse number 1. This is at his very first miracle, the beginning of his uh, earthly ministry, if you will, uh, or shortly thereafter. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Notice this phrase, Mine hour is not yet come. And again, even though that seems a little bit cryptic at this point of the narrative, as we understand and know that the crucifixion was the ultimate place where Christ was headed, uh, he is referring to that. He's referring to his hour not being here yet. Obviously, he's already started his ministry, so it's not in reference to his ministry. It's in reference to his death and his resurrection. Uh, let's look in uh, verse number 21, same chapter. Verse number 21, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Uh, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So uh, throughout the book of John, uh, it points to the fact that he is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And uh, certainly a very vivid accounting. And John is probably more so in this, in this area uh, indicating of the Lord Jesus Christ's purpose than all of the other Gospels, which is one of the reasons why uh, oftentimes when we're sharing the Gospel with someone, uh, one of the first books we ever turn to is the book of John. Uh, John chapter 3, of course, being a very famous, very famous and well-used chapter. In John chapter 3, verse number uh, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And even that verse points to and foreshadows the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He gave 
His only begotten Son. <coughs> so we find uh, the opposition uh, of the Son of God in chapter 5 through chapter 12. The fourth division of the book is the preparation of His disciples. This is in chapter 13 through chapter 17. This is interesting because up until chapter 12, He takes 12 chapters to deal with the eternal existence of Christ in eternity past, if that is such a thing, but before the beginning of time, all the way through um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, all of that is dealt with in the first 12 chapters. And then all of a sudden it's like John puts the brakes on really hard and fast. He's been moving rather rapidly through the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and he covers a, a large amount of the lifespan, the, the, the 30 years of the Lord Jesus Christ, 33 years or so of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he puts the brakes on and he spends five chapters dealing with the last few hours of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this because he is very, very detailed and very vivid in his account of those last hours. <coughs> Excuse me. It's during this period uh, from chapter 13 through the, uh, almost the end of chapter 17 that we find Jesus having a discourse with His disciples. And He knows His time is, is very near. He knows that within the next 24 hours He will be on Calvary uh, hanging on a cross. And so He's giving some final words to His disciples. And uh, in this, uh, He talks to them about knowing that they have uh, a bunch of resources at their disposal after He's gone. He's preparing them for the days ahead. And uh, he talks about the fact that there's going to come uh, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that they're going to be able to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their life. <coughs> and then he encapsulates the pattern of the Christian life. He does this very concisely uh, to his disciples, and he, he breaks it into three main areas. He deals with servanthood and the fact that they were to be servants. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, we are to serve one another. We are to serve the lost. We are to try to reach them with the gospel. And he deals with servanthood, and he uh, illustrates that by washing his disciples' feet. Um, he also deals with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's interesting because he doesn't go into all the details of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here, but he does indicate to the apostles uh, later on, because they write about it, the work of the Holy Spirit. And I found that there's uh, basically five things that the Holy Spirit accomplishes, uh, or four things that He accomplishes, and one thing we have to be careful of. One of them is the Holy Spirit gives us understanding and truth. He is our teacher. Uh, the second thing is He gives us boldness in service. Uh, he, he strengthens our heart. Uh, the, the third thing that the Holy Spirit does is he gives us our conscience. He convicts us of sin. Uh, he helps us to stay down the right course. The fourth thing is, He gives direction to our lives. So, He teaches us. He gives us boldness. He convicts us when we're wrong. And He tells us the direction we ought to go. And, <coughs> excuse me. And these are four main categories. Now, you could say, oh, there's some others in there. And you could, but you could probably put all of them in those four main categories. And he's telling the disciples, you have this resource of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give him to you. And he's going to do all of these things. He's going to bring comfort. He's going to give you direction. He's going to instruct you in truth. He's going to uh, help you understand when things are right and when things are wrong. And there are two things, understanding what the Holy Spirit does for us and the, the great wealth of a resource that this is to Christians. 
then we ought to take more earnest uh, care that we do not grieve Him and that we do not quench Him. Because He is one of the great resources in our lives. I think the Holy Spirit is, is not nearly emphasized in our lives, nor is He uh, thought about enough in our lives as to the work that He performs in us. And He certainly ought to be. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful uh, asset that that is. Something that God has allowed us to have. And so in this discourse, He talks to them about their servanthood. He talks to them about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then He, he talks to them about the importance of abiding in Christ. And again, I've said so often before, our personal walk with God is the most important thing in Christian's life, even above service. If our walk with God is not right, our service to Him will not be right. It is the most important thing. And we don't do it at the exclusion of all else, but it must be the important thing. It must be the top of the list, the highest priority. And then the last section is His crucifixion. This is found in chapter 18 through chapter 21. And in the crucifixion, John, or Christ fulfills John's prophetic words in chapter 1, verse 29, when he baptized him. And he saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming towards him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And in the crucifixion, Christ fulfills that prophecy that John gave. And John gives a very particularly detailed account, more so than the other three Gospels, of the post-resurrection Christ things that he did afterwards. And again, he does this for the purpose of establishing that Christ was the Son of God. The, the, the greatest proof, even above the miracles, that Christ is the Son of God was the resurrection. And it culminates in his resurrection. John speaks of this. He speaks of the eyewitness accounts. And out of the four Gospels, he gives the most, most detailed, most complete account of the post-resurrection Christ up until his ascension. John was the brother of James. He was the son of Zebedee and Salome. Uh, some people call her Salome, but it's Salome, I think, is the way it's actually pronounced. Um, and uh, it's interesting because Mark talks about the fact that James and John's mother, Salome, was actually at the crucifixion. Uh, that Christ addressed her and, and talked with her. Uh, and it also, uh, they were also known, James and John were both uh, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were known together as the sons of thunder, uh, which is an interesting thing. Uh, they were very, uh, very strong in their faith. They were part of the inner three. James, John, and Peter were kind of the inner three or the inner circle uh, of those that Christ uh, was closest to. John uh, was one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, uh, along with James and Peter. Uh, not James, uh, and uh, and uh, he was referred to in John, in, in his book, he refers to him as the disciple that Jesus loved. John was a very humble fellow. He did not often refer to himself by name in his own writings, uh, but he referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, and then uh, he was the oldest apostle. Uh, to live. He's the oldest surviving apostle. He died uh, after the age of 90, or at least he had reached at least the age of 90 before he died. <coughs> he was exiled for a time on the Isle of Patmos, and uh, there he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. Um, and when John died, he was the last of the apostles to die. When John died, the inspiration of Scripture ceased. We had all of the Bible that God said we were going to get. And John indicates that. 
He said we're not to add anything to nor take anything away from. And this was it. Uh, it was done. The inspiration of Scripture was complete. And we can rest assured that we hold in our hands the complete, inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God and without error. Uh, John is the one who finished that. He was the last one to write inspired Scripture. Uh, the, this particular gospel was written earlier in his ministry, probably somewhere between 65 and 90 A.D. Uh, in that range. Um, and he wrote some of his other books later on, uh, his other epistles in uh, Revelation as well. And then uh, the Christ uh, of John, uh, this book uh, presents probably the most powerful case of any book in Scripture of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at two passages real quick and... and uh, Let's look first in chapter 9, John chapter 9 and verse number 11. <clears throat> John chapter 9 and verse number 11. He had just healed uh, a man at the pool of, uh, I guess, Siloam, and, and he tells him, go to the pool and wash. And he answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. But notice the reference here in verse 11. It says, He answered and said, A what? A man that is called Jesus made clay. Now, turn back to John chapter number 6 for a moment. John chapter number 6. And let's look at, it's almost to the end here, in verse number 69. John chapter number 6 and verse number 69 I'm going to back up to verse number 67 so we can understand what it is. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered unto him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the what? Christ, the Son of the living God. And John, probably out of any other book, does... does a masterful job of showing that Christ was the man to do the work, but He was also the Son of God. He was all man. He was all God. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He shows the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ in several areas. He shows the fact that Jesus uh, was weary in chapter number 4 and verse number 6. He shows that Christ thirsted. And in chapter 4, verse number 7, he showed that Christ was, had, had dependence uh, on some things. In chapter 5, verse number 19, he showed that Christ experienced grief. In chapter 11, verse 35, he showed that Christ had a troubled soul. In chapter 12, and verse number 27, and he showed that Christ uh, anguished and died in chapter number 19. And this shows the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also shows the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this by using seven statements, seven I am statements. In uh, chapter number 6, in verse number 35, I don't have time to turn to all these. You can write them down. If you miss some of these, I'll make these notes available to you because we're running a little bit late and I'm going to move through these. But uh, he uses seven I am statements. The bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. Only God could say that. I am the bread of life, chapter 6, verse 35. He said, I am the light of the world, chapter 8, verse number 12. He said, I am the door, 
in chapter 10 and verse number 7. He said, I am the good shepherd in chapter 10, verse number 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11, verse 25. And he said, I am the true vine in chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Only God could say these things. Um, there's other verses, in, and I can give you the references here. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Chapter 8 and verse 58. That also affirm His deity. Uh, chapter 8 verse 58. Chapter 10 and verse number 30. Chapter 14 and verse number 9. Chapter 20 and verse 28. And so again, John does, does, does a great job in this, in this particular thing. And I know the Holy Spirit inspired him. Uh, to do these things and to write these things this way. But this book does a fantastic, uh, to our hearts, it does a fantastic job of pulling the fact that Christ was man, but He was the Son of God. And uh, He was both. Uh, the key theme is Jesus, the Son of God. The key verses are chapters 1, verses 11, and thir- 11 through 13. And John, chapter 20, and verse number 30 are the key verses. And then uh, the key chapter, I think you'd have to agree, is going to have to be John chapter 3. And uh, just in in a nutshell, uh, portrays the whole gospel. And uh, I'll tell you, the gospel of John, I I love all of them. They all have a purpose. They all have an emphasis that we don't see in the others. And if you read one without reading the other three, you're missing an awful lot. But I love John. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful. Out of all of them, it's probably, I would have to say, is my favorite uh, of the Gospels. But they are all profitable to us. Each of them has something the others don't, or emphasize something the others don't, that help us to know the life, the ministry, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, there is nothing more exciting for a Christian to study and to look at in Scripture than to see the perfect plan of redemption being laid out before us in a narrative form and us understanding and knowing what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you and I. And it is something that if you get to the place where you feel like, boy, I just don't have the joy that I used to have, go back and take some time to read the Gospels. You can't read about His life. You can't read about His crucifixion, His resurrection. You can't read the things He taught His disciples without your heart being stirred and excited again about what God has done for you. We're a few moments late, so we're going to probably start about 11.10. So take time to fellowship. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer.